once you've noticed this, it becomes very striking that when you see charity adverts, so whether it's for, you know, developing world relief, save the children, Oxfam, whatever, or whether it's domestic national charities that save the children and, and NSPCC, you know, these kind of things, the number of girls that they feature in, in photographs, the illustrations for their advertising, outnumber boys about four or five to one. The reason for that is they know full well when they put a picture of a, a little girl in distress, they will get more money because people respond to little girls in a way that they don't to little boys. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy and this is the Locked Up Living podcast where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning... Six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. So today's guest is writer, journalist and co-founder of the Men's Men and Boys Coalition, Ali Fogg. Um, Ali's used to writing for national press, so is, is um, someone who's quite well thought out arguments um, around many issues that relate to men and boys. Um, so really delighted to have you here today, Ali. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Hi, Ali. It's very good to uh, meet you. Can you begin by describing your career pathway for us? Have, have you always been something of an activist? Yeah, uh, that's probably a fair way to put it. Uh, my career pathway has, has, has not really been a straight and narrow path. It is, it is scattered around all over the place. But uh, for context, I did a psychology degree way back in the sometime in the medieval period um, and then did six years as a postgraduate research assistant in uh, clinical psychology and epidemiology, um, health psychology, uh, neither of which I really took to as naturally as I would have liked um, and academic careers kind of went by the wayside, uh, went, went by the way, um, largely, or at least maybe not because, but coincidental to that, um, when I first moved to Manchester, where I still live now, in 1992, uh, I was working at the University of Manchester there, and I also began to get involved in quite a lot of um, environmental activism, particularly. So those who, who are old enough to remember the 90s, um, all those characters who used to get carried down from trees in front of uh, your local motorway bypass, uh, wearing bad clothes and silly hats. I was one of those uh, and was involved in a lot of environmental and social activism through the 90s. And through that, I I kind of found that the, if you like, the the skill that I had most to offer uh, was away with words and writing things. And so from my activism, I actually got into writing and journalism. Um, and particularly what I, I uh, slightly pretentiously would, would call socially conscious journalism. Uh, so I worked for the big issue for a long time, and then I moved kind of sideways into uh, community journalism uh, and community media work. So I uh, helped to write a book on how to set up and run your own community radio station, and then I did run my own community media project for uh, many years. Uh, and throughout all of that, my, my writing and my activism were pretty much intertwined and, and inseparable. Uh, more recently, um, I'd done a, I'd spent a lot of time, uh, many years, working for The Guardian in particular, but other, other nationals as well, um, trying to push uh, gender issues as they, as they affected men and boys onto political agendas uh, and largely failing. Um, and 
partly for reasons of my own uh, sanity and well-being, um, but also as a, you know, a little bit of a political decision a few years ago, set back a bit from front-facing journalism. Uh, I kind of got to the point where I felt like I'd said everything that I could possibly say in as many different ways as I could say it. Um, and I, I moved into more kind of uh, low-key uh, lobbying and political activism, put it away, and, and we will come on to talk about Men and Boys Coalition, but that was a large part of that. So, yeah, in, in a very few minutes, in a uh, uh, long and complicated story, that's basically how my career uh, path has, has played out. So there's a lot of stuff there about uh, communication, either having a direct message to communicate or in organs that were facilitating uh, communication. I'm interested in, in the big issue because it's, it's a publication I've always been slightly ambivalent about for some reason. Uh, I don't know why. Was, was that a good experience? For me personally, it's an extremely good experience. Um, I share, I have no idea what your concerns are. Uh, I too... Uh, have always had some concerns about the big issue. Um, from the point of view, as, as a journalist, it was wonderful because it gave me a degree of flexibility. Um, it was a small enough organisation and far enough out of the mainstream of media and journalism that you could kind of make your own rules. Uh, so it allowed me to cover some issues that I probably wouldn't have been able to cover uh, with most uh, uh, mainstream media publications. Um, but also... There are uh, there are big and complicated issues around the whole idea of social entrepreneurship, um, the idea of using business to bring people back from you know vulnerable social situations. Um, to what extent the big issue actually addresses and solves problems, and to what extent it, it sustains and, and continues the problems. You know, th these are huge issues, um, and I never entirely resolved them and I still don't um, and you know it's probably worth saying as well that while I was working for the big issue I, I moved increasingly away from kind of uh, hard issue political journalism and, and investigative journalism into much more um, arts and culture music and lifestyle uh, which was actually from a you know, purely selfish personal point of view uh, much more enjoyable and, and less frustrating to do um, but obviously, you know, I was working within a uh, within a realm where what I am trying to do is, is, as a journalist, produce a product which people want to buy as a, you know, the, um, more than just an act of charity, and that was something that mattered a lot to us. Big issue that it wasn't just a, a you know a one pound fifty donation people were making; they were actually buying a product that they wanted to buy, um, and I, and I learned a lot, and, and it was hugely valuable to me and it was a, a very uh, rewarding experience in many ways. Um, they also made me redundant in the end, so like, you, know, you, can, uh, you can add your own uh, uh, long-term personal grudges to that as well, but it's all part of the mix of a, a you know, life-rich tapestry. Yes, well, thank, thanks for that response. That's a very helpful answer, actually. Yeah, you're clearly a bit of a Renaissance man. I can uh, hear from the description of the kind of things that you've done. Can you tell us a bit about the Men and well, Boys Coalition? Sorry. sorry well, I was just wondering, I was, I was, I was quite curious about your dis decision to switch away from investigative journalism and wondering if you recognise that that might take its toll on you at your own well-being um, by spending lots and lots of time um, engrossed in kind of like really deep sort of more unsavoury aspects of society. Yeah, I mean, that. Uh, this is a 
issue of personality and, and personal choices. Um, for me, it was less about the uh, the content of the issues I was investigating. So, uh, I mean, there, there, there have been times in my life where I've had to step back from issues around abuse and trauma and the, you know, the, the really disturbing and distressing stuff uh, because I'd been thinking about nothing else for years at a time and, and it does start to mess with your head. Um, with the, my years at the big issue, it was more uh, the frustration of not being able to get the stories that you want through. Remember, investigative journalism, you know, true investigative journalism is a very long, laborious and expensive progress uh, process and you need an editor who's prepared to give you a lot of time to produce one thousand word story or, or whatever it might be, uh, so particularly in a you know, small and, and financially uh, strict context like like Big Issue magazine, where you know they're for obvious reasons they're they're trying to reduce costs wherever they can, so as much of it as possible can go to the cause where it's meant to be. Um, on the one hand, the Big Issue uh, allowed a degree of ideological and uh, um, uh, diversity with regard to topic and subject matter, uh, which was great, but at the same time, they didn't have the resources that, for example, the Guardian or the Observer or, or whatever would to, to allow you to go in fully investigate a, uh, a topic. So from my point of view, it was more about the frustration of not being able to produce the type of work that I would like to be able to produce or about producing the type of results. You know, so I'd, I would produce a bit of work that I was you know, immensely proud of and felt like I'd, I'd really uh, done something worthwhile with my week at work or whatever. Uh, and then the impacts and, and uh, the knock-on results and that would be non-existent. You know, like the, the world did not change as a consequence. Uh, so, yeah, all of these things, it's, it's a mixture of the personal and the political and, and about you know, my own character and personality and the opportunities in the context and, and meeting the needs of people around me and... and you know, there, there's no one simple answer to any of it, but uh, it, uh, it, it was an interesting time of my life. Thank you. So, yes, so move on now. Uh, tell us a bit about the Men and Boys Coalition and, and why it was necessary. Well, um, I'll, I'll go back almost exactly 10 years, in fact. Uh, I've got a, a friend and colleague who at this time, 2012, was down in Brighton. He's called Glenn Poole, and he was running a charity for men called the Men's Network, I think, out of Brighton. And uh, around about 2010, 11 and 12, he organised some national conferences for the men's sector, which had never happened before in the UK. Um, his particular interests were around uh, suicide prevention, and also he'd, he'd done a lot of work on, on uh, estranged fatherhood and, and involved fatherhood. And... Uh, and what he did is he attempted to join the dots of some of these different issues around men's mental health, uh, men's well-being, uh, suicide prevention, uh, family relationships, family dynamics, upbringing, abuse recovery, um, all of these different issues with big gender uh, processing and gender elements involved. Uh, and he just kind of invited the sector from around the country to come and get together and have a chat. And, and what he found uh, very quickly is that people who were coming from what they thought were different sectors of, of the charity world or the, the um, public sector, uh, they were all coming up, coming up against the same kind of issues. Uh, so, for example, if you are a 
uh, if you are working with uh, men's mental health, specifically if you're providing support work to, to men in crisis, you quickly find that you're dealing not only with issues of mental health, but you're uh, dealing with issues of unresolved childhood trauma. There may well be uh, self-medicated uh, drink and uh, drug you know, addictive behaviour. Um, you have got uh, often stemming from self-medication and, and addictive behaviour. You might have uh, chaotic lifestyles and, and poor uh, personal health management. Um, and all these issues were kind of joining up. Um, and then when people went to commissioners or they went to politicians and said, look, we've got a particular uh, a, a group, uh, we've got a, a, um, a topic here, an issue here that needs focused support. They were finding that the structures were not set up to deliver because as soon as you mention gender, well, all the institutions, whether it is uh, you know, the health commissioning bodies or you know, um, national quangles and, and all the different uh, machinery of government, uh, they were all set up to consider gender as an issue of women's equality and women's well-being, women and girls. Uh, attempting to get a gendered response to an issue like homelessness or suicide or addiction or any of the other uh, uh, topics that were coming up here um, proved almost impossible because the funding structures, the bureaucracy, the, the tick boxes that they had to do in order to sign off funding for this project uh, did not allow for it. Um, so these type of issues were coming up in all different realms. And what we noticed is that actually people who were uh, working in suicide prevention were facing the exact same problems as people who were working with uh, unaccompanied male migrants because in both cases, they were uh, they were dealing with bureaucracies that had been built up around certain assumptions, which didn't actually meet reality in the ground. Um, so that was in around about 2011, 2012, that a few of us started to, to uh, talk more closely and constructively about building something bigger. Um, not so much as a, you know, a, a movement of, of forgotten men, uh, but more of a lobbying organisation. So how, you know, how do we approach the institutions of power? How do we go to the politicians? How do we go to the civil service? How do we go to health commissioners and say, look, we need a, we need a, a set of, of rules and systems and processes that will allow us to do what really needs to be done here. Um, we also had a variety of campaigns that were going on that kind of along the lines of um, multi-signatory public letters and so on, you know, the, an issue would come up that we would all want to write and complain about. So 50 of us would all sign the same letter. And, you know, those 50 kind of went on to become the beginnings of the Men and Boys Coalition. Uh, so the idea was very much to provide a, a voice in the corridors of power for a, a very important uh, uh, constituency of, of people in need uh, who didn't have that voice, you know, where uh, where someone could go to the Home Office or the Department of Health or, or uh, a local primary care trust and say, look, here's a wide range of, of people from you know, different sectors, different, different causes who all need you know, the, this intervention, this support, this type of help that you can deliver. Uh, and really that, that sort of began. And... Uh, we constituted officially in 2015, 2016. Uh, we now have uh, over 100 
members, mostly taken from the charity sector, but also from individual campaigners, quite a lot of academics. We have an academic network as well, which aims to bring together people who are working on uh, men's health and well-being from psychology or criminology or, or uh, public health or epidemiology or whatever it might be, and build networks where they're able to cooperate and collaborate with each other. Um, and uh, what are about five years on from where we first started, we, we keep finding new uh, new causes to, to get our teeth into um, and we're still a, a very small charity with very very minimal funding from anywhere uh, so you know we do what we can and, and the more we do the more we find that there's there to be done so uh, does that kind of cover where we came from originally? Yeah no that's, that's fascinating and but it strikes me that you must have to do a bit of remedial work because there's something about the whole issue men's issues as it were which um, a bit like the union flag um, has in some way <laughs> become associated or tainted with something you wouldn't want to spend too much mm. time with. And, and maybe this goes back to Robert Bly in the 1990s <laughs> and Iron John yeah. and going into the woods and eating baked beans and playing mm. with guns, that kind of thing. Howling at the moon. Yeah. Uh, yes. So do you, do you agree that, 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 there's an amount of remedial work that you've had to do. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the rubber Bly one is an interesting one because there, there are far more toxic examples that we could pick of, of people who have poisoned the, uh, the, the well in, in that regard. Um, but yeah, I mean, there obviously there's a long tradition of, of men's movements, uh, of which, you know, Robert Bly and the Iron Man thing was, was you know, one example. Um, but I think for me, the issue here is, is I, partly... I don't, even, I don't even know who Robert Bly is. Oh, God, sorry, I follow and you. So, no, no, and, and so I'm just thinking there will be people listening who also yeah, don't you're, know, you're... so if we could allow say me, something about me. the context. Yeah, uh, so you. back in the 1970s and 80s, in the in the aftermath, actually, it's quite interesting, in, in the aftermath of kind of the explosion of, of uh, second-wave feminism, women's li the, the women's liberation movement, as it was called in the 60s and 70s, uh, there was kind of a... Partly a little bit of backlash, but also a little bit of kind of reactive response from some men's activists, I guess you'd call them, um, including this this interesting American chap called Robert Bly, who's a poet and kind of he he described himself um, his his ideas as mythopoeticism, I think. So he he kind of had this idea a bit like a well, the, the film The Northman doing around, he, he kind of had this, this image of masculinity that was very in touch with nature. And it was kind of well-meaning. Um, you know, his idea was that men could resolve their issues by, you know, as, as, uh, as we were just saying, you know, going out in the woods at midnight howling at the moon, and this kind of thing, eating raw meat and all getting together and banging drums and stripping naked and rolling in mud. I, I honestly don't know what they did. <laughs> I, I've imagined all of these things in great in probably more detail than I should have done. Um, so uh, Robert Bly, he wrote a book called Iron John, which was how, how to become a, a, uh, a well-balanced and, and rounded man in the modern world. Um, and a lot, a lot of it was kind of well-meaning, a lot of it was also quite reactionary and gender essentialist and, as well. And it kind of, it had its moments in the 1980s. Um, there, there was another thing that happened uh, kind of around the same time, which I think is probably more relevant to the political situation and, from my point of view, probably more damaging. Um, there were other, uh, there were men who came out of the feminist movement 
uh, the, the most famous one was Warren Farrell, uh, who was a very um, prominent and, and vocal uh, male feminist in the early 70s, uh, who kind of had a falling out with the National Organization of Women in, uh, in the USA. Uh, and went off and, and started writing these books about you know what feminism had got wrong about men, and what he did. I mean, uh, Warren Farrell, he's another kind of, uh, in my opinion, uh, well-intentioned but misjudged, misguided uh, uh, writer or a theorist. Um, but what he did is he set a ball rolling that quickly turned into what we now know as the, the contemporary online men's rights activism movement. Uh, so uh, websites like A Voice for Men and the whole men's rights movement, I guess, call it, or, or um, <laughs> collective, whatever it is, uh, which has been rumbling on since the early days of the internet. Um, and there are two things about men's rights uh, activism, uh, activist scene, which I would point out. Um, the first is that their, uh, their guiding principle, their, their rule one, uh, is not really pro-men, it's anti-feminist. Now, they would say that those two things are, are inseparable and are the same thing, that you, you, you can't be feminist and be pro-men, uh, and that if you are anti-feminist, then you are helping men. I profoundly disagree with that. Um, but what the, what the MRAs have tended to do over the last 20, 20 to 30 years, they, they've been around a long time now, um, is raise men's issues. Sometimes, when, you know, again, very well-intentioned um, and, and raising absolute genuine issues of concern which need to be addressed and should be addressed, um, but viewing them really through a, an instrumental lens of how can we use this to undermine feminism. Um, and that, from my point of view, has done more damage to, to advancing like a, a, a progressive and, and constructive agenda for men than anything else because what happens is when as soon as you raise issues of men's welfare and men's well-being people assume that what you're doing is you are attempting to undermine feminist arguments um, and sometimes that's justified but there has to be a space in which you can do it where that's not the case and so an awful lot of what I've been doing and my colleagues have been doing over you know, well 5, 10, 20 years um, has been about developing ways in which we can talk about men's issues in ways that aren't uh, reactive and, and uh, contrary to the, the interests and well-being of, of women and girls. I think if it, we can go on though, re reverting back to the question of why men's issues are, are such a difficult thing to talk about, there is another point here, and it is, it's related to the, the previous one about the MRAs, um, which is that gender issues, are considered by just about everyone um, to be issues of power and equality. Uh, they're about patriarchy, uh, that gender, at least in, uh, according to a, a classic radical feminist uh, model, the function of gender is to uh, instill and support patriarchy. You know, gender only exists in order to support male power. Um, now, I disagree with that analysis, but it's been incredibly influential in terms of how we understand all issues relating to men and women. Um, so as soon as you start talking about, uh, if we stick to women, for a second, if you talk about women's health, if you talk about reproduction, if you talk about uh, abortion, if you talk about 
uh, female-specific cancers, if you talk about um, any other gender or, or gender or sex-specific uh, issue regarding women, it is seen through the light uh, through the lens of equality and power. Um, you cannot do that with men because as soon as you start understanding these issues of men's health and well-being as an issue of relative power between men and women, what you're doing is saying, okay, I want to make, I want to take a world in which men are more powerful than women and make men even more powerful. And obviously no one with a, a, a functioning moral compass uh, thinks that's a good idea. You know, if, if, we are, if we are understanding these things in terms of relative power between men and women, the only moral course of action is to support women. Uh, but what we have to understand, and you know, key to my politics on this issue, is that if you take away health and well-being from issues of equality and structural power, so that men's health and well-being are uh, not just you know, desirable in their own terms and, and a, a you know, humane and compassionate objective on on their you know, on their own basis, um, but actually. Uh, when, if your only concern, if you're purely factional and your only concern in the world is how this plays for women and girls, you know, even if you don't care about men, like the individual welfare of any man, any boy, anywhere, um, because of the world we live in, men's welfare and well-being are entirely interdependent with those of women. Uh, not only because most men live in households and families with women and they have shared incomes and, and fathers of daughters and daughters of fathers and sisters and brothers and you know we, we all our lives are intertangled so if you if you are a woman and you've got a man in your life who is drinking himself to death or you know taking his own life or um you know, resolving his his like uh, unaddressed mental health issues through uh, violence and, and self-destructive behavior and or uh, behaviour is destructive to those around him, then this is catastrophic for women and girls. So the idea that there's no, there, there's no interest or, uh, you know, call it feminist interest, you know, the, the idea that there, there's no uh, feminist case for men's well-being seems to me entirely bogus. Um, it's really uh, central to my beliefs about everything that uh, are relating to gender that meant that men and women's welfare and well-being is entirely interdependent and intertwined. Um, that where women are doing better, men are, doing, are having better lives. Where men are doing better, women are having better lives. Uh, we can see this playing out in all sorts of ways. So I simply reject the idea that to help men, to help boys, to, to uh, address you know, many of the unresolved issues that, that men in our society have is somehow bad for women. It's just uh, one of the most damaging and harmful uh, misconceptions that people can have about the whole area of gender politics. And on that, I feel like I've, I've rambled a long way from whatever the original question was on that, so maybe we'll <laughs> draw it back and you can ask me another. Yeah. Well, you overflowed straight into the next question, which was about <laughs> controversy. Uh, so we've gone right to the heart of controversy and I mean, I think one of several of the things you've been saying is to do with um, is to do with power and the binary nature of the um, arguments and how easy it is to slip into those binary uh, positions. But are there other things you think which make this whole issue of uh, uh, men's issues um, controversial? Um, 
I think one really important point to understand is that, by and large, the the neglect of men's issues, obviously neglect of men, but the neglect of men's issues as a political uh, agenda um, is not really born of malice or hostility. Uh, nobody wants male victims of, of domestic abuse or, or male survivors of, of rape and sexual assault uh, to go neglected and untreated and uncared for. Um, everybody thinks that, that they should be helped. The problem is uh, inertia, and the natural tendency towards doing nothing where possible. So if politicians can get away with not spending money on an issue, uh, then that will be their first course of action. It doesn't matter what it is. Uh, if, uh, if nobody is banging at the doors of health commissioners demanding change, then there will be no change. Uh, one really interesting exchange we had with uh, a politician called Robert Halfen, who is or was chair of the boys' education, APPG at Parliament, um, and was an education minister. I think he isn't anymore, but in, so fairly recently he was an education minister. Um, he came along to a conference that the Men and Boys Coalition organised a couple of years ago, uh, and he made a lot of really uh, well-informed and well-thought-out observations and, and contributions to the discussion about the underachievement of boys in education. Uh, and at the end of this, when he was taking questions, uh, someone, might even have been me, asked him, um, you know all of you, you know the nature of the problem here. You've explained it to us. Why haven't you done anything? Why have the politicians done it? Why has your political party never done anything about this until now? You know, there are no policies to address these problems. And he looked at us and he said, well, nobody's ever asked us before. And that was kind of a light bulb moment for us. And what you find is that when you go to the corridors of power and you start pushing at the doors, at least some of them will open. People will listen to you and, and there are ways through. But you have to, you have to uh, negotiate the map of the corridors of power to such a way that you can find the right doors to press to, to get them to open in the first place. Um, and I think because uh, our entire understanding of gender is really born of the feminist movement. And I, you know, reiterate, I, I'm constantly and, and perennially grateful to the feminist movement for opening out these conversations. You know, we, we would not be having this uh, conversation about gender if it wasn't for the, uh, all, the, uh, all the groundwork that was laid by you know, 50 years of, of discussions about women's welfare. Um, so, but because uh, gender is understood to be feminist issues, uh, there was simply no mechanism, or there has been traditionally no mechanism for, for changing things. So uh, it's not just politicians, it's not just civil service. Uh, the same goes with newspapers. I mean, one thing I found when trying to get issues around uh, men's welfare and well-being into The Guardian or into The Independent, The Times, whatever, um, very often the, you find yourself falling between editorial desks. So there's a women's editor and there's a social affairs editor, uh, and there's a, 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 you know, a, an opinion editor or whatever, uh, and none of them really think you belong with them. Uh, so, yeah, the, the, oh, well, yeah, this men's, you know, men's welfare, that's not really something for the women's page. It's not something for the, you know, it's not something we want in the social policy pages. Uh, it just kind of falls through the gaps. Um, and this kind of history of, of you know, men's issues being invisible uh, it's still with us now, and yeah, you know, we are trying to change it. But it, it's um, 
we can see it. There are really good examples in issues like uh, homelessness, which is a really powerful, powerfully gendered phenomenon in, in our society. You know, the overwhelming majority of rough sleeping homeless people are men. Um, housing policies are gendered so that if you are a, a, a single woman with children, you're more likely to be housed than if you're a single man with, home, uh, with children, never mind a single man without. Uh, children um, and there are there are gendered effects happening at every level and yet no one ever thinks of homelessness as a gender issue um, very few people think of homeless people as having a gender and this are, that's a really uh, kind of dramatic statement I just made there because you know, well of course everybody's got a gender everybody knows that but how many times have you heard people talking about homeless people and their children when you see a, a homeless man uh, whether he's you know begging in the street or, or sleeping on a park bench, um, how many people ask what his children it might be, um, and uh, how many people talk about homeless people and their sexuality? Because issues of parenthood or sexuality uh, of uh, you know, our gendered inner lives does not apply once you've got a, a, an almost dehumanized body as a homeless person. So actually putting the putting the gender into the you know, into the equation, getting people to see gender when it should be the first thing we notice uh, is a really important part of what we're doing now. Um, and we we talk a lot about the you know the invisibilization of male gender, uh, where we'll see it within you know within your realm of of uh, you know, crime and punishment judicial policies. Um, there was a uh, an example a few years ago of, I think it was Medway uh, Juvenile Detention Centre, where BBC Panorama, uh, in uh, in collaboration with the one of the big prison reform charities, I think it was probably the um, uh, Francis Crook of the Howard League, um, and a couple of other charities, they did a big investigation into like, really quite horrendous abuse that was happening at, at a juvenile detention centre. Um, the reporting of that on Panorama and all the accompanying press releases, the, the stories that came out in, in the newspapers and the discussions on five live daytime tele, uh, radio, um, they talked about children, they talked about young offenders, uh, they talked occasionally about kids, they would talk about youths, and the one word that they never used was boys, because what we were talking about, every single instance of abuse that Panorama had uncovered had a male victim. There were girls in the detention centre too, but all of the victims in this particular scandal were boys. Um, but no one ever referred to them as such because there is more sympathy. You get more understanding. You get more compassion out of audiences if you don't tell them that they're boys. And that's a, a really quite uh, chilling revelation, I think. Um, and you see the same thing. It, it, once you've noticed this, it becomes very striking that when you see charity adverts, so whether it's for, you know, uh, developing world relief, Save the Children, Oxfam, whatever, or whether it's uh, domestic national charities, Save the Children and, and uh, uh, NSPCC, and, you know, these kind of things, um, the number of girls that they feature in, in photographs, the illustrations for their advertising, outnumber boys about four or five to one. The reason for that is they know so well when they put a picture of a, a little girl in distress, they will get more money because people respond to little girls in a way that they don't 
to little boys. Um, and this kind of thing is, is, is really quite disturbing when you stop and think about it and you ask yourself why this happens. But it, it's, it's taken as such a given that nobody ever really stops to question it. Yeah, very interesting uh, thought. And has cropped up quite a lot uh, recently. And, and, and I think the term is adultization, where particularly young black kids get uh, treated as if they were adults. And the, the migrant debate, particularly un, unaccompanied uh, migrants. Um, I mean, what, something that I would like to do a lot more work on myself, I've not been able to even begin to get to grips with it, is the way that the, uh, the issue of particularly unaccompanied migrants, but refugees and asylum seekers from around the world, um, the way that is and is not gendered and racialized is fascinating. There's the famous Nigel Farage uh, breaking point poster, which from in the run-up to Brexit, we'll probably all remember, there was a, uh, Nigel Farage did a, a, a billboard release and was photographed standing in front of this, like, really demeaning and, and uh, dehumanised uh, parade of, of down-at-heel rough uh, asylum seekers who were supposedly all queuing up waiting to get into Britain, was the, the message. So every one of them was male. That, you know, people were being asked to be afraid, not just of the foreigners, not just of the migrants, but of the foreign males. And this was happening at the same time, you know, there was, there was a kind of a, uh, I mean, a genuine incident, a horrific incident in Cologne on New Year's Eve, where there's kind of a, a group of lads uh, went a bit clockwork orange um, and were committing sexual assaults and stuff. Like through the city centre, um, and it was it, it was like a little bit of a riot, um, and it was deeply unpleasant, and they particularly targeted women, and it was all horrible. Um, but it was used to construct a narrative about male asylum. It wasn't just about one little gang of of out of control teenagers. It was about these male, uh, probably brown skinned foreigners coming to rape your children. You know, that that was the story that we were going to put over, um, and and the whole business about uh, refugees. Um, in practice, what happens is that young men aged 14, 15, 16 are at prime risk of being conscripted into militias, into armies, uh, or just being taken out and shot when they are in war zones. You know, the young men are are at the biggest risk. So, of course, what families do is when war breaks out, the first thing they try and do is get their teenage sons out of out the way of danger because they are at the, the most heightened risk. Um, and that's how you end up with Calais and, and refugee camps, um, which are predominantly taken up by young males. Um, now, when the UN and uh, other agencies do any kind of audit of who these refugees are, they find that, yes, they are indeed 14, 15, 16 years old, and that that's prime age, that, you know, the peak age for refugees is, in, is you know, the age of my, my, I've got sons who are now aged 13 and 19, nearly 20, um, and it, it strikes home that these boys are right the age of my kids are now, and, and they are kids, um, and yet they are through race and gender and uh, migrant status, all of those things are blended together to create a very gendered, racialized threat. Um, and it's horrific and, and it's, it happens a lot and, and it's very, very seldom challenged anywhere. So yeah, 
Um, but there are countless examples of, of the same kind of processes where gender is, is both uh, uh, a weapon that, that's used against people. So, you know, their gender is, is used to condemn them, um, but also it's used to define them. Uh, and and it very, at least as far as men and boys are concerned, it very seldom plays out in a way that's helpful. Thank you. So, Ali, what about the term toxic masculinity? We hear it a lot these days. Is it a useful term? Okay. Um, I first came upon the phrase, or, or first noticed the phrase, uh, round about the millennium, probably between the years 1995 and 2005, there was a, um, a number of criminologists working out of the USA working in prisons. And I, mean, I, I apologize to all the criminologists who are listening to this podcast who know an awful lot more about this than I do. And if I'm about to make a fool of myself, I, I apologize in advance. But as I understand it, um, particularly there's a, a chap called Terry Coopers um, and some of his colleagues who wanted to know why it was that people in prison, uh, men in prison, were behaving in ways that were clearly objectively self-destructive um, and harmful to their own interests. Uh, it might be getting involved in cultures of violence. It might be refusing to take up opportunities for self-improvement, education, um, and just general um, refusing to cooperate with the, the system. Uh, lots of different behaviours which uh, all had the result that their lives got considerably worse than they would have been otherwise. Um, and in attempting to answer this, uh, Terry Coopers and others looked at uh, the function of gender identities um, in, in con contexts of extreme pressure and stress. Uh, so one thing, when, when human beings are put in really dangerous terrifyingly uh, frightening circumstances, they will retreat into who they think they are. Now, sometimes it's their race and their nationality uh, and other forms of identity, their sexuality, whatever it might be, but very often it's gender. So I might have, uh, you know, I, I might have nothing in the world. I might be, um, I might have a penny to my name, might not have a career, might not have a job, might have any qualifications. What I do have is my masculinity and I will be proud of that. Uh, and so what these criminologists started to do was come up with a, a conceptual framework that would analyze and understand that. And the phrase that they used was toxic masculinity. And what they meant was a manifestation of masculinity that was toxic to the, the individual themselves. Um, when it's used in that way, and it's an extremely useful and, and insightful uh, uh, term and, and concept, um, and it will probably help a lot of people understand a lot of what's going on. Um, but the phrase, those two words, toxic masculinity, kind of migrated out of that conversation and, and out of that academic realm um, into general discourse and particularly um, what you might call social media feminism. It kind of it was adopted and it began to be used um, not so much as uh, an analysis of what was going on for specific men in specific contexts of, of stress and pressure, um, but kind of a, a catch-all phrase to dis dismiss any issues that ma men might have. Oh, that's just your toxic masculinity. Um, and 
it became a very popular and populist buzzword. Um, and I've got a huge problem with that. Not so much as, well, actually, I've got several huge problems with that. Um, the first one is, as I understand gender, the first thing, uh, first thing anyone learns about gender is that it's a social construct. Okay, even people who don't really know what a social construct is will be able to tell you <laughs> that gender is one of them. Um, and for me, what that means is that gender is something that is built uh, by a hegemonic society to serve particular interests. Men are not born as they are. Men are made as they are. And this also goes for you know, women and, and everyone else, of course. Uh, men are widely thought of as being brutes. The, you know, within the, the uh, casual, lazy uh, uh, cultural understanding of, of who we are, um, we want to talk a lot about why men are brutes. We very seldom want to talk about why men are brutalized or how men are brutalized. Um, men are not born violent. Uh, sure, we might have all kinds of capacities and you know, innate abilities and, and tendencies or whatever, but violence and hostility and aggression are trained into boys. Um, the idea that a boy should be uh, stoic, that boys don't cry, that boys should be tough, that boys should be able to uh, both uh, be the recipient of and the perpetrator of violence, uh, is something that you learn as a boy from age dot. Um, we know that uh, parents-to-be react differently to the bump in a woman's tummy if it has been given a gender. Um, so women will understand the kicks. A pregnant woman will understand the kicks in her tummy differently if she thinks she has a boy or a girl <laughs> in her tummy. Um, and then we, we know uh, from the day they are born, that parents will go to a girl who cries more quickly than they will go to a baby boy who cries. You know, baby boys, I can't remember the actual figure, but something like you know, 30 to 50% longer uh, will cry before the adult goes to, to pick them up and see what's wrong with them because we expect boys to be tougher. Now, this is something we are doing to boys from the, from the early age. Now, all the times we talk about toxic masculinity, I think it would be so much more useful if we talked about toxic masculinization or toxic masculine socialization, because what that does is it takes the issue away from being an individual failing of, of you know, one man, and it becomes a collective failure of our culture, our society, our community, of how we've raised the boys and men around us. Um, now, a lot of my thinking, uh, I'm trying to get too lost in the theory here. Um, but the gender theorist Ray Connell, Raywin Connell, uh, talks about hegemonic masculinity. The idea that masculinity is there to serve a purpose for the ruling class in, in kind of post-Marxist terms. That uh, if we want men to be tough, it's because we've had hundreds of years of expecting men to get signed up and go, go off and sign, fight, fight in wars or to go down mines or to, to you know, die in fields or whatever. Um, our capitalist culture and society requires men to be as they are. And if we want men to be different, it's a political project that we all need to undertake. Uh, it's not enough to say to individual men, pull your socks up. That's, it. That's a very 
individualist and, and say, you know, neoliberal right-wing viewpoint that people's individual failings are just their responsibility. And if, if they're not right, then it's their own job to fix themselves. And I find it quite frustrating that as someone who's, you know, very proudly of the left, of the broad left, um, colleagues and comrades and whatever you want, words you want to use, people I know, you know my, my fellow people on the left, um, they would laugh in your face if you said the solution to uh, drug taking amongst young people is to just tell people to just say no. We all know that's nonsense. It doesn't work. Uh, they would laugh in your face if you said uh, the solution to uh, teenage uh, crime, you know, street gangs, is to just say to kids, well, well, don't join a gang. Um, and we send, or, or you know, over the decades, um, all sorts of well-meaning NGOs and charities and campaigners have gone into schools to deliver assemblies on why children should just say no to drugs or just put down the knives. And, um, and most of us on the kind of left who've got an understanding of issues of sociology and social processes and so on, kind of, we get that that just doesn't work because someone does not pick up a knife because they just woke up this morning and, and decided that they were going to pick up a knife. And yeah, it, it, it's not that simple. And yet, when it comes to issues of gender, which, with all the massive complexities and, and difficulties and, and you know, all-encompassing, wide-ranging impacts of gender on humanity, um, people seem to think that it's enough to say, you know, the solution to misogyny, to violence of women and girls, to, to uh, you know, sex offending, is to just go in to a school assembly and say, have you considered addressing your toxic masculinity? Um, it's basically just saying pull your socks up, uh, and what, from my point of view, all of that agenda is uh, an abrogation of our social responsibility to raise boys better, to to raise boys healthier, you know, raise boys to be more healthy, to uh, to be more secure, um, to be better looked after. We know why people commit crimes. We know what, in, in broad terms, we know, we know what makes it more likely that someone will uh, you know, uh, commit a violent act. Um, and very little of it is to do with their you know, beliefs about themselves. And all of it's about their experiences and, and their, uh, their life patterns and, and everything they've gone through that's going to make them what they are. Um, so that my, my Fun, uh, <laughs> I haven't even got point two yet. The, the first issue with toxic masculinity, I think, is, it, is this abrogation of, of social collective responsibility uh, to build better boys and make better men. Uh, there's another important issue, though, uh, which is just on a purely practical level, it's really obvious that men generally, and particularly young men uh, and, you know, teenage boys who are most often the target of these narratives and these discussions, they really don't like the term toxic masculinity. They either don't understand it, so they think that what, you know, what they're being told is that men are poison. It's like, you know, basically men are shit. That's how it, you know, it doesn't matter how many uh, uh, feminist theorists you've got writing essays saying, well, ah, but that's not really what it means. That's how it's heard. That's how it's understood. So when you when you bring up toxic masculinity as an explanation, as a as a uh, as a focus of whatever kind of 
intervention that you're attempting to make. Um, what you do is you, you create a barrier. Um, and one of, uh, I, I think, I, I, uh, if I'm looking at my agenda, really, we're about to go on to talk about gender inclusive policy, and I will lead you on perfectly to you know, the, the idea of what gender inclusivity is. And a big part of it is allowing people to define their own gender experiences. Um, and one of the biggest problems with toxic masculinity is that, as a rule, it's not, not entirely uh, across the board, but as a rule, men and boys feel like this is a term that has been imposed on them by others, uh, specifically by women and by feminists. Um, and it's not something that they would have uh, identified themselves and it's not something they feel they own. Um, and for that reason, um, it's kind of, it often does more harm than good. Thanks, Ali. Um, yeah, as you, as you rightly said, I think it would be good to talk a little bit about the differences um, between an approach that's gender inclusive and one that's gender neutral. Yeah, well, there are three ways, as I understand it, there are three ways you can approach uh, any social issue. Uh, those with, with gender as a factor. Um, you can be gender neutral, which in practice usually means gender free. So when I talked about uh, homelessness earlier, that's a classic example of an issue that we approach with a gender neutral, you know, that it's homeless people. Nobody talks about homeless men and homeless women. Occasionally, you will see a, a newspaper feature or, or a, you know, a charity will do something specifically about homeless women. And when we're talking about homeless women, then the gender will appear and it will become an element all the rest of the time when we're talking about homelessness that is gender neutral. Um, or you can be gender exclusive. So a really, uh, probably the best way to illustrate this distinction is in the, uh, in the subject of domestic abuse. For a long time, and thankfully it's more or less uh, uh, died out now, but for a long time, there were many in the women's domestic abuse uh, sector who would argue that uh, male victims of domestic violence did not exist. Either they were all uh, perpetrators themselves and that the women who had beaten them were acting in self-defense, uh, which is kind of a victim blaming argument, um, or simple denial you know that you know these men who claim to have been beaten up by by women are just lying, um, or or just simple you know refusal to face up to the facts, um, and so or the other the other thing you get is that yes um, some women will abuse their male husbands but that's not domestic abuse. You know, all of these things are designed to maintain an exclusivity of. Uh, female victimhood in, in the realm of, of domestic abuse. Um, now, the evidence is now overwhelming that female perpetrated abuse against men is relatively commonplace. We can argue about how uh, relatively harmful it, it may be, and those are really complicated issues, but the fact is it exists. Nonetheless, we still see huge amounts of, of social policy which assumes that all victims of domestic abuse are women. Uh, you will hear politicians, it's really common for a politician to stand up in the House of, House of Parliament to talk about an issue like domestic violence and will use victims and women interchangeably. So if we're talking about women, they are female, and if we're talking about women, they are the victim. Um, that's a classic example of a gender-exclusive approach. Now, how do we... Uh, 
The other, oh, one more thing I'll, I'll say at this point um, is that there's a lot of people, particularly the, I mentioned the, the men's rights movement back at the beginning of this conversation, a lot of people in, in the men's rights activism want a gender neutral approach to domestic abuse. So you don't have males, you don't have, you don't have male perpetrators and women victims, you just have perpetrators and victims. And we want a one size fits all approach uh, so that all perpetrators are perpetrators and all victims are victims, and it doesn't matter what their gender is. Um, in practice, that doesn't work, partly because the experiences of uh, male victims, I mean, if we, if we keep it to the victims at the moment, the, the experiences of male and female victims are so profoundly different, not least because of the way that society considers them and the way that, you know, um, whether it's the you know person in the street or the next door neighbor or whether it's the police and the social workers and the authorities that should be intervening who consider a male victim very differently to how they consider a female victim um, so just that fact alone changes everything you know you, you can't just pretend that gender isn't there and then of course people's own experience of you know of anything particularly something of, of um intimately uh uh powerful and, and, and um, devastating as an abusive experience. People have gendered experiences of that. If I, if I am a man, thankfully I'm not, if I'm a man in a, an abusive relationship, um, then I don't just understand my abuse in relation to my non-gendered, uh, uh, purely hypothetical partner. I understand it as a man with a female partner. You know, if I was in a same-sex relationship, it would change again because I'm a man and my male partner is treating me away and that changes the dynamic. So, so all of these things are gendered at every level and we cannot begin to understand them, far less address them, without allowing for people's gendered experiences and the way in which their gender uh, is, a, is a, in a living dynamic with the world around them. Uh, so what do we do? Um, the idea is that gender inclusivity allows you to have uh, different experiences understood through a gendered lens. So it is up for, uh, if you want to understand male violence against women, the first people you ask are the women who have experienced male violence. What is your experience? How did it impact upon you? You know, uh, how did other people talk to you about it? How did other people help you? Um, and there's no no controversy there. Yeah, everybody agrees that obviously makes sense. Um, and yet, when it comes to male victims, too often the first people they go to 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 uh, explain and understand male victims are female victims. Are are the the women's aid, refuge, uh, respect the organisations that are that were set up by women to understand women's experiences, um, they're the ones that are given the privilege of explaining the, the experiences of male victims. And that's why for a long, long, long time, uh, male victims of domestic abuse were entirely cut out of the picture, almost entirely cut out of the picture. And to an extent, we still are, we, we will probably come on to talk about. Um, so gender inclusivity uh, means that not only does social policy understand and reflect and uh, include all the gendered processes and gender dynamics that are going on within whatever given social phenomenon you're talking about, um, but also that our gender uh, informs and illustrates and, and improves the responses that we've got. Um, so again, uh, 
it's quite easy to talk about domestic abuse because we can see all the you know, gender inclusive practice in uh, gender inclusive policies in action. And we can see what happens when you've got a gender neutral approach and you can see what happens when you've got a gender exclusive approach. We, you know, we have seen all three of those in the not too distant past. Um, I would love to see a gender inclusive response to homelessness, to go back to the example I used earlier. Um, I think we would serve the needs of homeless people much better if one of the first things that we did, uh, you know, with the charities, who are, you know, we talked about the big issue earlier, and then they, um, don't pick them out other than I know them better than others. Uh, when someone turns up to register as a new vendor, at the big issue, they don't ask them about their children and their relationship with their children. They don't ask them about their sexuality and their sex lives. Um, they don't ask about, you know, the, their experiences of homelessness from a gendered point of view. It's just not on the radar. Uh, and I've had this conversation with people who work with the charities, with the Big Issue and other charities, and they're like, oh, just that never really occurred to us. It is impossible to find out how many homeless men in Britain at the moment have got children because nobody has ever asked them the question. Why, why do you think we are so blind to um, thinking at a deeper level about these issues when men are either victims or in positions of vulnerability? What is it that, you know, I was really struck by what you had to say about you know adverts for charities for instance always featuring mm. girl children and as the mother of a, a son um you know found that really quite upsetting quite disturbing oh, i'm curious about you know what do you think are the reasons why we we struggle as a society to even think about men with that kind of degree of nuance uh i'll give an answer that might surprise you some of the, the some of the uh, listeners anyway um i think it's patriarchy I honestly think um, we one of the one of the products or the the function of a patriarchal society is to create men who are basically disposable, who are uh, you know if you're going to send them off to a war, uh, if you're going to we think of of um, kind of gendered conscription in terms of, of the First World War and you know, like millions of you know, entire generations of young men being sent off to die in the trenches. Um, but right now in Ukraine, we have got a situation where you know, cars and civilians are being stopped and the men are being taken out to be taken off and, 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 uh, and conscripted. Um, now, I don't even want to get into the rights and wrongs of that because I can obviously, you can see both uh, you know, both arguments why, you know, in the middle of a war, you need people to fight. Um, and yet there's very little discussion about the human rights issues involved in a pure, classically discriminatory, um, you know, about a, a most brutally gendered discrimination as you could possibly imagine. It's still, I, I, this came up in conversation with someone who's having the other day. It is still the case that if you're an American citizen, if you're a male, uh, between the ages of 18 to 25, you have to register yourself for military conscription. Obviously, you know, it, it's within uh, you know, uh, current you know, living memory, within living memory in, in the US, that the people's fathers and, and uncles and brothers were conscripted and sent off to Vietnam. So it's not that long ago, but still to this day in America, um, you have to register yourself. You have to make yourself... You have to let the government know where you will be at any given time so if they want to conscript you, they can come and get you. Um, there's big arguments whether practically effective or not, and it obviously doesn't really work. Um, but that, that's still built into the American Constitution. 
Um, and yeah, I think it's something like two thirds of the country on earth have some sort of military conscription, either national service or, or a capacity for the possibility of national service. And all of it is gendered everywhere. Um, now, if we are going to do that to men, we need men who are A, going to be like, was sufficiently um, uh, desensitized towards violence that they're quite easy that you can give them a gun and they will pick it up and they will shoot someone and kill them. That you know that's what you want of a man. Um, and our culture is built on hundreds of years of militarism and patriarchy and, and uh, imperialism and white supremacy and all these other things that have been going on for you know. And and our culture you, know, you can't shake that off. In a generation or two, um, so we still—I don't get too sucked into this—but you know, you can still go to the supermarket and see Mummy's Little Soldier on on a baby grow, and most of the time we don't bat an eyelid at it. And yet, when you stop and think about it, just how sick that is. You know, there, there's something deeply wrong with our society. And of course, you you get Mummy's Little Porn Star. Uh, baby bibs as well, and, like, you know, and it's not just men. This is part of you know, our gendered society. Um, but even if you take the military out of it, um, it's not. I mean, it's still the case that that we expect men to do the most dirty and dangerous jobs. Um, you will find very, very, very few women working down the deepest mines, doing the most you know, uh, and deep sea diving. You know, the, the fishermen. Um, you know, the jobs where you are very, very likely to die at work are overwhelmingly done by men. Why? Because we're just, as a society, as a culture, we're just a bit more accepting. And you, of course, you know, again, with the, the, the listenership to this podcast, you know, there will be evolutionary psychologists out there uh, who will be nodding sagely and saying, well, yes, of course, that's what human societies need, because you need to protect the, the, the mothers of children and and men actually in, in in an evil psych model men actually are more disposable than women and um, i kind of say is that the world that we want to live in <laughs> maybe maybe that it, yeah, our our evolution has shaped us in all sorts of ways which we have risen above and which we choose to rise above we have not yet chosen to rise above this one and, and i very much hope that someday we will but we're not there yet Thank you, Ellie. I'm conscious of the time and um, actually could ask you lots, lots more stuff. But I think obviously the reason why we wanted you on is having work, working in the criminal justice system, the vast majority of people that we've come into contact with during our working career have been men, men and boys. So it's been fantastic to have you on today talking about all of these issues in, in, in really great depth. Thanks a lot. Great to meet you, Ellie. And you, David. Thank yeah. you to all.